Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. I hope you guys are having a wonderful December so far. We are continuing the denomination series today. Before we begin, please remember that Christ the Cure is subscriber supported. It is because of patrons that the show and materials keep coming out. Hoping to put more out as we go into the new year. More PDFs, things of that nature. More uh, long-term resources, right? Uh, so keep that in mind. And if you find Christ the Cure to be a valuable resource, go to patreon.com forward slash Christ is the Cure and become a patron there. Now, as with all the other episodes of this installment, I am going to be talking about a tradition that is not my own. Double check my work. And as I go through and prep these, I am well aware of this fact and I'm weary about having done justice for each tradition. So if you are in the tradition I'm speaking about and something is off, I apologize in advance. If you're listening and trying to learn about a tradition, just make sure that you're double checking my work. I'm trying to pull from their sources and I'm going to say this almost every time. For this one, I did consult some Lutheran friends, uh, and that's what we're talking about. We're talking about Lutheranism. I consulted them, made sure that it was fair. And remember that this is a broad overlook, right? It's not exhaustive. It's not into the details. Every tradition is rich. And on many levels, there's a lot of overlap. Um, one of the things that I keep seeing as I go through this series is that there really is a unity in essentials. There's a lot of fundamental agreements. The points that we're talking about here mainly around sacraments, ordinances, and how church organization looks are really like the big dividing lines. And so it kind of reassures me at least about the uh, against the idea that Protestants are just chaos. Now, it is true that there are the fringe like independents, and there are a lot of evangelical churches that get pretty wacky. I mean, you can't be dishonest about that, but you can say the same thing about every tradition. We've been talking about that since the beginning of this series that every group is dealing with various tensions, and that's just the product of our postmodern, post-Christian environment. Our generation and the generations after us have a lot of work cut out for us, um, getting past those presuppositions and things of that nature. It's one of those things. Anyway, let's get into the historical summary of Lutheranism. Now, Lutheranism is one of the few denominations that has the name of its foundational influencers attached to it. As one can probably guess, it's centered around Martin Luther, the German theologian of the 16th century, generally marked as being one of the major catalysts for the Protestant Reformation. And he never intended to create a new church or denomination. And instead, the word Lutheran was derogatory uh, before it was eventually accepted. In fact, some still don't even prefer to be called Lutheran because of the derogatory nature of its inception. But Lutheranism was forged in the fires of the desire to reform the Catholic Church. And because of its focus on retaining that which was appropriate and making only necessary reforms, it's probably the most Catholic of the Protestant denominations. Many stressing points of Lutheranism, however, are the cornerstone of Protestant ideas, such as the primacy of Scripture over tradition and the five solos of the Reformation, which does include, of course, sola scriptura and so forth. So at this point, I'm not going to dwell too long here because a lot of us know the story of Luther and his conflict with the Roman Catholic Church. We hear about it very often. It's very well known. So there's not really a point to rehash that. With Anglicanism, it needed to be rehashed because a lot of it kind of ties up with King Henry whenever that's kind of a misconception. But here uh, we're going to focus on just the fact that Luther was one of the magisterial reformers, meaning that the churches should listen to and be guided by the magistrates so long as they do not violate Christian conscience. And this position would lead to many Lutherans operating as a state church and being supported by the government. 
that would be maintained by Luther's theory of two-kingdom theology, which is something worth looking into if you look into Lutheranism. In 1529, Luther would put together his large and small catechism, and Luther's associate, Philip Melanchthon, who is a major figure in Lutheranism, would compose the Augsburg Confession. In 1537, Luther, Melanchthon, and other German reformers would put together a collection known as the Articles of Faith, and these documents together will be compiled and known as the Book of Concord. The Book of Concord would be, and is, a foundational collection in Lutheranism and offers explanations of Lutheran theology. So, if you're talking about where Lutheranism begins and ends, we're talking about the Book of Concord. Now, in the 17th and 18th centuries, Lutherans began having tensions over the rise of pietism, which placed a greater emphasis on personal holiness and a relationship with God, while prior, the emphasis was focused on the objective side of salvation. That is what God has done with little concern over the subjective aspects of one's faith. Of course, whenever we start talking about stuff like that, usually the rhetoric is a little bit uh, exaggerated, right? Nonetheless, this divide was still relevant as the Lutherans moved into the New World because many of the Lutherans who went to the New World were pietists and they would establish Lutheran churches with more of this subjective focus. Lutheran churches popped up in significant numbers within the United States, especially with continued immigration and because of this, its laymen outnumbered its pastors, and its organization basically kept needing to be revamped because of how much it was flourishing. Now, a synod was formed in 1748 known as the Ministerium of Pennsylvania, which was a body of cooperating churches. Other synods would be formed in subsequent years, but in 1820, the General Synod was formed, and this was the first national body of churches established. The Missouri Synod would be formed in 1847, and following the Civil War, various synods left the General Synod to form the General Council. As Lutheran growth continued, so did the number of Lutheran bodies. Olson states, at one time, there was about 150 Lutheran bodies in the United States. Consolidation, unification, and federation in the 20th century reduced that number to about a dozen. In 1988, three of the largest Lutheran denominations, the American Lutheran Church, the Lutheran Church in America, and the Association of Evangelical Lutheran Churches merged to form the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. With each major merger, new separate churches were also formed in protest, and that's from the Handbook of Denominations of the United States. Now, obviously, this was a very condensed summary, very brief, of the Lutheran Church from Luther to you know, its place in America. But whenever we're speaking about the climate today in terms of conservative or liberal Lutheran churches, a key group is the ELCA or Evangelical Lutheran Church of America that was mentioned above. Um, that was that merging of the American Lutheran Church, the Lutheran Church in America, and the Association of Evangelical Lutheran Churches. This group today, the ELCA, has been heavily critiqued for its increased lacks on interpretation of scripture, creeds, and, of course, Lutheran confessions. And on current issues, the ELCA ordains practicing homosexuals, transgender pastors, and women. And there are many other issues that Lutherans have with the ELCA, many of which won't really be hashed out here. Needless to say, when it comes to that subject of liberal theology and ideology, the ELCA is generally considered radically liberal and apostate by many, if not by most, conservative Lutherans. Now, on the conservative end of Lutheranism, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is considered one of the most conservative, and that's uh, abbreviated as LCMS, with the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod following as well. 
But as with every group, there are both conservatives within the ELCA trying to reform it and liberal movements that are kind of trying to pop up in the LCMS in Wisconsin Synod or WELS. And so there's those things where there's always those back and forths as groups try to influence and move within these different traditions. But these broad designations are applied to their formal dispositions first and foremost. But you can go look at some of those dialogues between uh, these groups on these different issues. And I think I have an article linked in the description for this episode or the landing page for this episode on this subject. And so whenever we're talking about conservative, we're talking about LCMS as being one of the top conservative branches of the Lutheran Church in America, at least. Um, and going forward, we're going to presuppose that conservative framework with the LCMS as the basis for the remainder of this discussion. Furthermore, uh, the highlights of divergences that we would normally have at the end of the episode have kind of already been dealt with here. The ELCA is really the big one. And so we're not really going to revisit that below. But again, it is worth stating that this is not exhaustive. And so that's that. So let's talk about sources and authority. This is a short section. Regarding sources of authority, Lutheran stress sola scriptura, that is that scripture is the final rule and authority, but other documents mentioned prior play a crucial role in Lutheran theology because sola scriptura in every Protestant tradition does not mean that there's only one authority, but that scripture is the final authority. So when we talk about Lutheranism, we're looking at the formula of Concord and the documents that make up its contents as being key documents in the Lutheran tradition. Additionally, their creeds, include the Apostles and Nicene Creed uh, in their exposition of Trinitarianism, Christology, and they also affirm both creeds formally. So for the LCMS and other conservative Lutherans, the Book of Concord is secondary in authority after Scripture and acts as a cornerstone for those learning of and within the tradition. So whenever it comes to polity and church government, Lutheran polity can vary, but the majority, however, fall into congregational governance. Congregations are united in synods still, though, that are made up of elected pastors and laymen who act as representatives. Some Lutheran groups do have bishops, technically lending themselves more to the Episcopalian model, but most do not. Those that do have bishops, bishops usually act more as administrators rather than spiritual leaders. Uh, on apostolic succession, we read, quote, very few Lutherans emphasize apostolic succession, although the ELCA, the largest Lutheran denomination in the United States, has agreed to submit to apostolic succession and its ecumenical agreement with the Episcopal Church for mutual recognition of ordinations and pulpit exchange. ELCA pastors can pastor Episcopal congregations and Episcopal priests can pastor ELCA congregations. And since the agreement, all ELCA ordinations include an Episcopal bishop, some Scandinavian Lutherans, such as the Church of Sweden, have always practiced apostolic succession. And that is also from Olson. So for the majority, you have this congregational governance where they meet up in synods. And these synods deal with various legislative work and work with congregations on a number of issues such as missions, planting, worship, etc. It's kind of like the SBC and the Baptists that are part of the SBC. Um. I, there's going to be differences, obviously, but I think that's probably the closest parallel if we're talking about, well, what can we reference that with? So the LCMS specifically, which again will be our primary source for the remainder of this installment, does not have bishops, but it is divided into 35 administrative districts with national assemblies taking place every third year. The LCMS will partake in various dialogues and efforts across denominations, Lutheran and otherwise, but has a closed communion 
to those churches that do not accept the church's confession on the Lord's Supper. If I'm not mistaken, I introduced closed and open communion in the last installment, so I'm not going to rehash it here. So on sacraments and ordinances, on the sacraments, we have discussed the Lutheran position on the supper in the introduction in brief, but we'll just kind of retouch on it here. It was noted that the Lutheran position is best understood as a sacramental unity. While often the Lutheran position is called consubstantiation, for the most part, Lutherans reject this designation. Very few actually use or approve of this designation. So sacramental unity is the best way to honor their position. This view of sacramental unity holds that the substance or the nature of the body and blood, bread and wine are all present together intermingled. So the substance of the bread and wine stay bread and wine while the substance of Jesus's body and blood are literally present with the elements of the supper. So again, Lutherans maintain that the literal body and blood of Jesus are present in the supper, but alongside the bread and wine substance, which remains unchanged. Lutherans famously depict what occurs as the body and blood being, quote, in, with, and under, neither natural nor local, but illocal, supernatural, and incomprehensible, yet real, end quote. For Luther and subsequent Lutherans, the supper is the word and the gospel repackaged into this meal. They are a sign of promise regarding the forgiveness of sins in Christ that elicits a response of faith from the believer. Additionally, the supper strengthens the faith of the Christian and is a tangible reminder of the forgiveness of Christ. Thus, if we look at the slider of literalism and memorialism on the nature of the supper, Lutherans are second only to Catholics in literalism as opposed to a spiritual presence view. However, Lutherans do not seek to explain beyond what has been said here and leave the rest of the supper to mystery. When it comes to baptism, Lutherans hold to baptismal regeneration, where baptism is a means of grace where God creates and or strengthens the gift of faith in a person's heart. I will have links to that, uh, but I'm looking at the LCMS uh, frequently asked questions on baptism for this. It's about doctrine on their website. Further, Lutherans hold to infant baptism. The LCMS will describe this as terms the Bible uses to talk about the beginning of faith include conversion and regeneration. Although we do not claim to understand fully how this happens, we believe that when an infant is baptized, God creates faith in the heart of that infant. They continue to note that we believe this because the Bible says that infants can believe and that the new birth or regeneration happens in baptism. The infant's faith cannot yet, of course, be verbally expressed or articulated by the child, yet it is real and present all the same. You can go to that website, the LCMS about doctrine, frequently asked questions on baptism, and they have more clarifying uh, questions and answers on that topic. Lutherans, however, also point out that faith can be created in a person's heart via the power of the Holy Spirit, working through God's word for the adult. And for the adult, baptism should follow conversion with the purpose of confirming and strengthening faith. Lutheranism holds that baptism is necessary for salvation, but with the caveat that it's not absolutely necessary. There's some great videos out there, especially like Jordan Cooper. If you want to look at a good Lutheran source, go check out Jordan Cooper. Um, and so baptism should not be neglected as it is commanded and has promises attached to it as a means of grace by which God grants faith and forgives sins. So let's talk about distinctives. Now, distinctives within the Lutheran tradition begins with Lutheranism being traditional in the sense of being kind of like Anglicanism and being closely tied to Catholicism relative to other Protestants. So 
Lutheranism on the ground is going to be the closest Protestant denomination to Catholicism when it comes to appearance and some practice. Yet, with Protestant emphasis on the five solas of the Reformation, particularly surrounding justification. Within Lutheranism, however, such as in Anglicanism, you can find more of a high church or low church congregational spectrum. So you may go to one Lutheran church that has more high church, more liturgical, right? And then you may go to one that's a little bit more low church. Theologically, Lutheranism positions itself as neither Calvinist nor Arminian. And I bring this up because this is usually a big discussion, right? Uh, and it can really best be understood as being more similar to classical Arminianism, but with a strict emphasis on the passivity of the human in salvation and stressing monergism and less credence is given to free will. Lutherans hold to total depravity, but describe it as bondage of the will. They hold to unconditional election. Election is not based on foreseen faith. They hold to unlimited atonement, resistible grace, and they hold to perseverance of the saints with the qualification that some can and do depart from the faith and lose their salvation. And I've also linked an article on that, which I believe is Jordan Cooper's article comparing TULIP with the Lutheran system. Something worth noting that you want to look into is the difference between Lutheran Christology and, say, Reformed Christology. Uh, this is not really going to be expounded on here, but these differences ultimately lead or led to the divergences between Lutheranism and Reformed theology on issues like the Lord's Supper. So it's a point of interest for those who are looking into Lutheranism. You can just look up Lutheran Christology compared to Reformed Christology to kind of get an idea of what that looks like. When it comes to emphasis, we're going to kind of blend some distinctives and emphasis now. My categories, I know I've kind of broken them in a little bit in this episode, but a lot of times the distinctives become emphasis, right? That's kind of what makes them distinct. So if we're talking about distinctives in Lutheranism uh, and emphasis, one of them is this emphasis on the dichotomy between law and gospel. Living Lutheran describes it as follows, quote, Lutherans have a distinctive way of reading the scriptures based on Luther's insight that God's word comes to us in two forms, law and gospel. The law as command tells people what they should do. The gospel as promise tells us what God in Christ has already done for us. God's law functions in several ways. It structures human life by protecting and promoting good and limiting and punishing wrong. The law also functions theologically as a mirror or as the doctor's diagnosis to show us our sinfulness and our need for God's grace in Christ. Because we are sinners, God's law always accuses us. Only the gospel frees us. As Luther puts it, quote, the law says do this and it is never done. Grace says believe in this and everything is already done, end quote. So on top of this uh, view of law and gospel, which does have a key role in hermeneutics in the Lutheran theology, there's also this emphasis on the theology of the cross, which you can go look into the theology of the cross versus the theology of glory. And also the notion that uh, Christians are simultaneously saints and sinners, forgiven sinners with this dual identity. And there's also a great emphasis placed upon the priesthood of all believers, which holds that there is no longer a priestly class of people within God's people, but that all believers are in Christ's priestly status by virtue of their union with Christ. So relative to other traditions, Lutherans can also be said to be particularly emphatic on the sacraments and the necessity of those sacraments. Now, as it was mentioned before, we kind of talked about divergences, the biggest one being the ELCA, which is the largest Lutheran denomination in the United States and is currently kind of undergoing more changes that have been critiqued in the last like a year or two when I was looking at articles. And so that's worthy of note here. 
But ultimately, this is our crash course of Lutheranism. I'm not really sure which group I'm going to do next, but that will be after the break. There will not be an episode on the 21st as it's the day before my anniversary and, of course, the weekend of Christmas. And so there won't be an episode on the 21st. We'll pick up on the 28th and we'll see what group I land on. Now, I do want to end this episode with saying I hope that you're finding these helpful. I know that they're very broad, but I hope that at least you can have a good general idea of what a tradition is, where it came from, and how it relates compared to others so that you can conduct some research independently and kind of supplement it. That way you have a good launching point of like, well, what does this mean in this particular tradition kind of thing, right? So again, I hope that you're finding this series helpful. And until next time, God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful week.